love the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. In your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter number 12. We're going to read verse 31 down to verse number 50 today. Matthew chapter number 12. always feel energized on days that are bad weather at all, especially snow days. If we have 10 inches of snow, people say, does it affect your preaching if the attendance is down? I I feel like I'm more passionate because if people can show up with bad weather, uh, I better have something to share with them. Amen? And so if you're going to brave negative 21 degree wind chill weather, preacher better preach this morning a hot message. Amen? Don't get it cold. You don't want a cold one today. And so Matthew 12, let's read verse 31. We're going to go down to verse 40. The Bible says here, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonah, or Jonas, was three days, three nights in the whale or the great fish's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost part of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none, findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. They enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also Unto this wicked generation. He didn't pull any punches, did he? Verse 46 While he yet talked with the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my mother and sister, or my brother and sister and mother. Father, we thank you for your word today. What a joy to gather together with the people of God. We thank you for the word of God, and we pray that you would accomplish the, the desire of the Spirit of God in this place, that you would move in our hearts, you would move in our lives, that our understanding would be enlightened to understand and grasp the depth and the breadth and the weight and the height of thy word and that you would teach us Lord that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and father if anyone doesn't know Christ today that they might be saved and if any Christian is away from you God if any any is being pulled away by the things of this world that you would awaken them to the foolishness of that and that they might come to the only Savior and the God of their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated today. Well, the most important thing about a person's life is what they believe about God because what you believe about God will determine 
how you live the rest of your life, the direction your family goes, and ultimately what will happen to you for all of eternity. So what kind of understanding do you have of God? How would you define Him? What do you base that definition on? Unfortunately, most people base their idea of God on their earthly experiences. If life is going good, God is good. If life is going bad, God is bad. The problem in our world is man has thought he can define God. The Bible teaches that God made man in his image, but man wants to now make God in man's image. But can the creation really determine the creator and define him? Can the thing made create the definition of the creator? Does the definition for God come from what we think? Our frailty is staggering. We, we do not understand the things in the created world, let alone the creator of the cosmos. Can we really grasp the depths of the ocean, the immensity of the universe, the power generated by the sun? Can we understand the intricate design of the DNA or the, how atoms combine to make elements? Do we understand the laws of physics, why gravity, which is the ratio of electromagnetic force, is fine-tuned to 1 in 10 to the 40th power. And if it wasn't fine-tuned to 1 in 10 to the 40th power, everything would be destroyed on the earth. It's a numbering so, number so staggering that it would be like filling the universe up 75% full of sand. And if you removed one grain of sand compared to 75% of the universe being filled, everything on the planet is destroyed. That's how fine-tuned gravity is. Who dialed that in? Or it's like the cosmological constant, which is the expansion rate of the universe is fine-tuned to 1 and 10 to the 120th power. And if it were slightly more positive, the universe would fly apart and negatively, and the universe would collapse on itself. The level of fine-tuning is so staggering, it would be like filling two universes up with sand and removing just one granule of sand in comparison to two universes filled up with sand. That's how fine-tuned the cosmological constant is. Who was the one dialing that in? And you're going to tell me that came by chance, sir? Who is this grand and majestic God? Who is the creator of the universe? The universe, which is a unique word in itself, uni, which means one and verse, which is a single spoken sentence. God in one verse spoke the world into existence. Psalms 33 verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9 says, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I would ask, who is man to define God? Who is man to put God on trial? Man, under, man struggles to understand how bumblebees fly, how a lightning bug can produce 100% light with no heat when we can't come close to that. How can electric eels generate 700 volts of electricity at their will? How can a bird fly from the Arctic to the Antarctic landing in the exact same nesting site year after year? How can spiders spin their webs and beavers build their dams? We struggle to understand bugs, let alone the eternal God. Charles Spurgeon said, As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. Listen, friends, we don't define God. God defines Himself, and He's chosen to do that through the pages of Holy Scripture. The Word of God is God's own self-revelation to us that lets us know God wants us to know Him. That's why we go to the Word every single week. Not only does He reveal Himself in Scripture, but then He humbly clothed Himself in human flesh, lived among us for 33 years to show us His glory, to reveal His infinite love to us to show us his great mercy and compassion and his desire to dwell with us. Jesus Christ put the creator on display. He showed us who God is. John 1.11, how did the world respond to him? The Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. There was a few that accepted him. The majority rejected him. He was loved by some, but hated by many. And why, why did that happen? It's because man in his nature is evil. 
And when light came into the darkness, men loved the dark rather than the light because they were depraved. Jesus revealed the absolute truth of God and all that he said and all that he did. Such brilliant light exposed the sinful nature of man, the self-righteous pride of the religious crowd in that day. He revealed God's truth in such a way that it exposed the error of the people. Jesus called people to repent. He called them to surrender their lives to him. He said things like, it's worth giving up everything you have to have me, to love me more than your family, more than your life, more than all of your possessions. Jesus taught man could not be good enough to get to heaven when the rich young ruler said, what good thing could I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, there's no one good but God. Religion in that day had turned into a prideful show, a parade of spiritual activity, a boasting in one's goodness. Man thought they could achieve entrance to heaven through their good works, but John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ both came preaching metanoia, repent, turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your pride, turn from your sin, turn from your unbelief, and turn to Christ, fall before Him and you would be saved. But instead of worshiping Jesus, who the, is the eternal God-made flesh, they redefined Him as Satan. They called him Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, and among the Jews, which referred to the prince of the dung. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost, and yet in such a tragic response, the same people who made no room for him in his birth made no room in their heart for him as Savior. He came preaching a message of repentance and salvation, extending the divine hand of grace to the dying sinner And instead of reaching up in eternal gratitude and worship to God who would be so benevolent to take away their leprous sin, they slapped his hand away. Never forget being at a hospital room sharing the gospel with an 86-year-old atheist. Four hours later, he would die from the time I came and talked to him. And when I asked him, I said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Just take my hand. And he slapped my hand away. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Man chose to reject God's offer of salvation. Today I want to look at five results of rejecting Christ in this final section of Matthew 12. This this is heavy. What the Lord begins to do in Matthew, in the middle of Matthew 11, and really for a couple chapters, few chapters, begins to really be intense. I had somebody ask me the other week, they said, they said, are you angry? You, you seem like you're preaching a little more stirred up these days. And I said, I said, I'm not angry at all. I said, what happens is when you, when you just live with this text for a week, you begin to embody what is, is going on here. When Jesus is, is, condemning the crowd, saying it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in the day of judgment. How do you preach that with a smile? Does that make sense? So the intensity of what Jesus is doing here is, is, is strong, and, and we're going to see that continue today. And so uh, I, am, I am in a good mood. I am excited to be here. Uh, but the message is, is a very sobering message. It's a very sobering reality. And I think, I think the older I get, uh, the, the reality of life sets in a little bit more, the seriousness of life. Um, you know, I, I was a lot more silly when I was a teenager. I'm not as silly anymore. Um, life begins to get more serious, doesn't it? You know, you, you bury 150 plus people, you, you, you see people dying weekly, you deal with eternal things, you see Christ being rejected, you see America going down the absolute drain, and it's hard to be f- thinking funny thoughts a lot. And, and so today we come again to where Christ is, it's just a sobering thing, it's a very humbling thing, it's a, but, but what we're going to see is this, they define Jesus as Satan and he's about to define them. He's about to turn the light on to what their rejection really means. And, and I want to highlight five of those things. And the first is here in verse 31 and 2, which is this. To reject Christ results in being unforgiven. It, it is a result fixing you in unforgiveness. 
Verse 31 says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. This verse could be called the ultimate antithesis. An antithesis means the exact opposites. It describes a situation where two opposites are introduced in the same sentence for the purpose of contrasting effects. And in this passage, we have the ultimate antithesis of sin which is forgivable and sin which is not forgivable. Here the Lord starts with the eternally good news. And many people miss this good news because they're so fixated on the unpardonable sin. He says this, notice, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Is that good news? But we usually miss that because we go into the unpardonable part. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh, he did say that. And so he highlights man's greatest need here is forgiveness. Sin is the great problem of man, and Jesus alone saves. I love how Micah describes God in Micah 7, 18. He said, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of, thy, of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. Thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Anybody want to serve a God like that? Think about Psalm 103.8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow in anger and plenteous in mercy to all that call upon him. Verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. All sin and all blasphemy shall be forgiven. Jesus said someone could be forgiven if they blaspheme him. This refers to those who reject Christ, having never been fully exposed to who he really is. They ignorantly reject him. And this forgiveness also assumes that they would later repent and put their faith in him. That's why it says they shall be forgiven. The great apostle Paul was an example of this, right? 1 Timothy 1 verse 13 Paul's own testimony, he writes of himself, who was before a what? We don't have that verse. So, verse Timothy 1.13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. He says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. So the good news is this. We've all blasphemed God. We've all taken Him in vain. We've all treated Him without the weightiness that He deserves. And He has been so merciful to forgive us the blasphemers. But He goes on and says, but, and this is a strong immediate transition, the greatest news is now compared to the worst of news. There is an unforgivable sin. There is a sin that God will not pardon. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. He reiterates this again in verse 32. Whosoever speak, and, and again, repetition is a way of Jews elevating something. This is how they ex, put exclamation points. They would repeat it. Show emphasis by repetition, and so he repeats it. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. There is a world to come. This isn't the only life. Is that, is that good to know? Is it good to know that Joe Biden won't be a president in the eternal kingdom? It's even good to know Donald Trump would not be the president in the eternal kingdom. Both are good news, Right? So, if you're going to write me a letter, just keep it. So, um, I'm thankful Jesus Christ will be king. Now, now, what is blasphemy of the Holy Ghost? It is to ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ and ascribe it to Satan. Now, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Well, Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it's important to know this. The word Mashiach is the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's the Greek rendering Christos, where we get the word Christ from. It's the anointed one of God is what it means. Satan was the anointed cherub. Jesus is the anointed son of God. And so he was anointed at his baptism according to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, John 1, 32 through uh, 34. 
And Jesus did all that he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Though he had eternal power to make the heavens and the earth according to John 1, Jesus laid aside the glory that he had. He, he didn't lose it. He didn't become less than God. You can't become less than God and still retain deity. He just laid aside the free exercise of certain divine attributes. He had all the power, but yet he chose to lay it aside and operate in his incarnation under the power of the Holy Spirit, totally subjected to the Father. So that everything he did was a representation only of the Father. He put God on display and always and only did what pleased the Father. That's why Acts 10.38, Peter said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of devils, and God was with him. Luke 4.18, Jesus says what the anointing of the Holy Spirit allowed and, and, and caused him to do. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Luke 4.18, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Blessed are the poor in what? These aren't just financially poor people. These are people who have humbled themselves. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised. Now Christ was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, they, after Jesus cast a demon out, we saw that last week in Matthew 12, 28, they said he did this by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. In response, Jesus says in verse 25 through 30, he says, your, your, your accusation is absurd because the kingdom of Satan cannot be fighting against the kingdom of Satan. If that's the case, then his kingdom is divided and it will not stand. Secondly, he said your accusation is biased. Your sons cast out demons and you believe that's of God. And then how do I cast out demons doing the same work? You can't be biased in your accusation. And then thirdly, he said your accusation is false. Verse 28, he said the kingdom of God is coming unto you. So Jesus tells the Pharisees here that they committed an unpardonable sin. Do you realize the Pharisees in that day were locked and damned to hell then? They could not be saved. They were fixed in unbelief. And, and, and what is this unpardonable sin? It was to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, to be exposed to His words and His works, empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the full light of God was on display. And if they did not believe in Him with all the light, how would they believe in Him with lesser light? They had proven themselves to be fixated in unbelief, and they were turned over, if you would, to a reprobate mind. They were unpardonable. The sin was unforgivable. Their rejection was in the face of the full revelation of God, the person and work of Christ. It's, it's like 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16. A very similar account of the nation of Israel. It says this, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by messengers, rising up betimes, sending them because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling. The nation was so wicked, He's doing Everything to send them messengers, preachers, prophets. Verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God. They despised His words, misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people. And what's the last part say, church? Till there was no remedy. There was no remedy. When all that God would extend has been extended and you reject that, then you are condemned. You have, you have fixated yourself in unbelief. Now many people believe the unpardonable sin could only be committed in the days of Christ when he lived on earth, that it would have been unique to his time because Jesus Christ was on the earth then and he's not on the earth physically now. One element to support that belief is this sin is never spoken of anywhere else in the New Testament. But friend, I would say this. It is a very, very dangerous and serious thing to say no to God. To reject Christ, you are embracing deception. You are choosing to die in your sin. Jesus said this, if you do not come to me, you will die in your sin. 
For if you believe not that I am he, you'll die in your sin. Today, you need to realize Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, that you must surrender your life to Christ as Lord, confess him as your Lord and Savior. If you know that and you reject that, that is very dangerous for your soul. Hebrews 3.15 says, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. This is Romans 1. This is when people continue to reject God, reject God, reject God. Romans 1 says, and God gave them over. God gave them over. And a third step in Romans 1.28 is God gave them up to a non-functioning conscience. It's called a reprobate mind. It no longer, longer could be stung by conviction. Hardened against God. Not only do they rebel against God, but they pleasure in sinning against God. Has America gotten to that point? Much of what's going on in America today? Uh, there is a point that you can cross, and we don't know individually when that is, but God does. When a person gets to a point where they have the light turned out for them where they are in darkness and they are confined to judgment already. They're dead while they live. So to reject Christ results in your sins not being forgiven. So if you want to stay in your sin, if you don't want to have your sins removed by God, if you want to stand before God and be judged based on your sin, then don't come to Christ. And what a dreadful thought, wouldn't it be? Secondly, to reject Christ is to confine yourself in evil. It's to incarcerate yourself to your depravity. You're, you're chaining yourself to the worst of yourself. Matthew 12.33 says this, either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for a tree is known by its fruit. Here Jesus gives an axiomatic statement. It's a self-evident truth. It's so blatantly true you don't even have to explain it in other words. A tree can be somewhat obscure like this time of year. I mean, there's some of you guys, there's like the Eric Howards, there's the botanists that are here that they, oh, you know, they named that tree off. I'm like, it's a twig coming out of the ground. How do you know what that is? They'll go up and they'll smell it or rub it or something, you know. No, I'm teasing, kind of. But they, but they you know, they, they, they're one with nature. They can, I'm like, I don't, is that an oak tree? I'm like, no, that's a pine. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I guess I know that. I know that difference, kind of. But, uh. But they can be somewhat obscure different times of year. But what allows even the normal person like us, people like us, to, to identify what a tree is, is come springtime. The leaves are the first indicator. We're like, oh, I can identify. Those leaves begin to speak to the reality of what that tree is. But more than the leaves, it's the fruit, isn't it? Because sometimes you can plant like a pear tree next to an apple tree or something. And you're like, you know, which one? I can't remember which one I had over here. And I'll wait till the, when the, I couldn't be able to tell by the leaves. Some people can. But when, when the fruit comes out, you're like, I know exactly what that is. You could take a four-year-old outside, right? Which is a pear tree. Oh, it's a pear tree, you know. And, and you would be able to tell. You know what Jesus is saying? Your life will begin to produce what you are. Whatever, whatever kingdom you're a part of, whoever your father is, that fruit will begin to be displayed. And it will show up in your life and in your lips, defined by fruit and words here. It will put you on display. That's why, <laughs> that's why Jesus gets real um, clear about the statement in verse 34. He gives the axiomatic statement in verse 33, and then he gives the definition of what the religious leaders were in verse 34. So, so if you go back to verse 24, it says the Pharisees heard that, and they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. If you flip to verse 34 there, he calls them, O generation of what? Vipers. Now, what do we know about vipers? Vipers uh, can sometimes in Palestine in that day, you know, there was you could you could sometimes misidentify like is that a stick or is that a snake? You ever been on a path? You know, you step on the stick and it kind of rises up on the other end. You're like, whoa! You know, you have a heart attack. And uh, but sometimes it is a snake. 
it starts moving, and man, that's a, that's a fun thing when you have four girls. You know, they really, really make some noise. But the thing about a viper, where's the danger found? It's not in the tail. It's not in the body. You know, they're not going to wrap around and squeeze your leg. It's, it's in their mouth. It's, that's, the, that's the dangerous part. And it's so fitting. The poison's in the mouth. And the poison's in the mouth of the false teacher. Um, and, and, and this is the same kind of language that John the Baptist used of them, Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, I'm so glad that God's working in your life. What a joy to come. Is that what he says? This is, this is the greatest man who ever lived on earth besides Jesus. And, and, and what does he say? He calls him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee the wrath to come? I would assume there would have been people in the crowd who said, John, that's a little intense. <laughs> right? I mean, people get on me for saying things like, you know, this, this individual over in Texas is preaching a false gospel, or this person over in Michigan is preaching there is no hell and God's love, and there's, that, that's, that's false, that's not true. Well, you shouldn't name these people out. Oh, really? If there is a viper, and you're with somebody in the woods who knows there's a viper there, would you want them to identify the viper? Would you want them to know, hey, there's some deadliness over there. That's not real safe. Would you be like, ah, I don't really want to make, point that, point that out too much. Again, I, I don't think that the, the pastor's job is to spend his life pointing out every, every person and, and group in the world that's off, and we don't do that here. But there are times when deception can rise at such a level that you have to point it out. And that's what happened in the days of Christ. And you don't do it with a, with, with, with a mean spirit in the sense of like you're, you know, you, you want those people to be saved. You want them to turn. But it also frustrates me. That's one thing that does anger me. I get frustrated with false teaching. I get really, I can get angry. I can get upset because I know what it does to people. The Bible says if somebody comes to your house preaching another gospel, don't even bid them a good day. Get off my property. Don't, that, that, that's, that's what First John says. Whether we like that or not, that's just what the B-I-B-L-E says. First Samuel 24, 13 says, Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked. And that's why Jesus says, You're a generation of vipers. How can you, being evil, you are evil, you, how can you speak good things? You are, you are confined in iniquity. You are an evil person group of people, and he's referring to the, especially these religious leaders and even some of the people that were following them. And, and Jesus was so strong in his denunciation of the religious leaders of that day. Last week, we looked at two kingdoms that collided, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. I mean, I mean this, is, this is the collision course. And the collision was not with Jesus, the kingdom of light against the Roman kingdom, it was the kingdom of God coming against the kingdom of the false religious system that had grown in Judaism. And what the true people of God had turned the truth into. Self-righteousness. I mean, you would have thought that the, the battle would have been somewhere else. But it wasn't. It was there. Because it wasn't the pagans that crucified Christ. If Pilate had his way, Jesus would have been set free. Is that true? Pilate feared Jesus. And in that day, it wasn't Jesus on trial. Pilate was on trial. Pilate was scared to death. Jesus was fine. Pilate was squirming. His wife said, that had nothing to do with that man. He's like, I can't get out of this thing. He was terrified. I remember Pilate said, will you not answer me? He says, don't you know I have power to condemn you or the power to set you free? And Jesus says, you would have no power if it weren't given you from heaven. My kingdom's not of this world, because if it was, uh, this doesn't happen. This is the, pow the power of Christ to restrain himself. is staggering to me. You know, it's one thing if somebody forced your hand in a fire, it's another thing to keep your hand there. When you could pull it out. He put his life in the flame of death. He put his, when he had the power to pull his own body off the cross. 
it just, it's just overwhelming to me and why you would stay there. And it's because of his love, first of all, for God, the Father, and his empowering by the Spirit and his love for you and me. And, and, and Jesus goes on, and, and if, maybe in your free time this week, read Matthew 23. Uh, that's Jesus bringing down the hammer on the Pharisees. He calls them in Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? He just obliterates them. But he goes on in verse 34, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. In other words, what is in your heart will come up in your mouth. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Matthew 15, 19, he later says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, theft, false witnesses, blasphemes. Uh, blasphemies. Uh, this is why in the Beatitudes, Jesus did not simply confine evil and sin to action. He confined it also to our attitudes and our desires. You know, adultery is not just the act, is it? It is also adulterous to begin to lust because people don't just commit adultery externally. It's, it's something that stirs inside of them. People don't just kill somebody externally. The anger starts inside. People don't just spin themselves into oblivion, into bankruptcy. It starts with covetousness on the inside. We, when desire is not restrained, it takes the sinner captive. Young people, you need to get this. Some of you are willingly led captive willingly engaging in wicked conversation with peers, getting into lustful, foolish language, sinful stuff. I can tell you this, you don't just get out of that stuff easily. You better guard your heart and you better listen to your pastor who loves you a whole lot more than the person that's trying to cause you to send bad pictures or do whatever else. You need to understand that if you open your heart up too far to that stuff, it will devour you. God said, Cain, if you do what's right, but if you don't, sin is at the door and its desire, if I could put it in the common language, is to conquer you. It's crouching. It wants to conquer you. It's waiting on your decision. And instead of repenting and doing what's right, and you know what sin, <laughs> like a demon, like a demon, came upon Cain with like seven more demons more wicked than itself and infused itself to Cain. And his neutrality became his depravity and he became a murderer by the end of probably the, that week or very soon after. I can tell you sin will take you farther than you ever want to go. I always remember I had a couple buddies in high school. I used to go to these guys' house all the time after ever, probably one... Half the games of my senior year, half the basketball team, we'd go stay all night at their house and hang out, get up, parents would make us breakfast, we just had a good time. And uh, boy, he was a pretty ornery kid, but he was, you know, he, I grew up with him in church a little bit. A lot of the guys went to church, but once we graduated, him and another one of my friends thought they're going to go down to Florida and just live it up for three months, just going to live it up for three months, just sow their wild oats without any restraint. By the end of three months, they were taking fake guns, holding people up at gun, fake gunpoint. Today, you, I mean, you're getting a shot back then. Robbing people, they were so drugged out, so sexed out, so messed up. That guy has since then nearly killed multiple people, spent years in prison. I went to see him a couple years ago. His mind is gone. Three months devoured him. Three months. You open yourself up to that and you will get destroyed. You think you can control sin? Anybody ever thought they could control it and it devours? It, it'll eat you up and spit you out and destroy everything in your life. And it will laugh when you die. It will mock you. It's what sin does. It has no... It longs to control and that's... That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence. Out of it are the issues of life. You better guard your heart. That's why this LBC 242 is such a big deal. 
It's not just you getting plugged in, but you inviting other people to plug them in. If you don't get plugged into this, you're not inviting anybody, and it becomes a trickle effect of, of an investment. And so pour in the people. So by rejecting Christ, they were rejecting the only one that could deliver them from the captivating power of evil. And he says in verse 35 that a good man out of the good thesaurus is the Greek word there, or Thesaurus is the Greek, but it's where we get the word thesaurus. Thesaurus means storehouse or treasure house. Treasury of words is a thesaurus. This, out of the, out of the treasure of his heart, he brings good things, and an evil man out of the evil of his heart bringeth forth evil things. Jesus is saying our hearts are the treasure of our desires, ambitions, thoughts, loves, attitudes, and actions. Uh, what he's saying is what is really on the inside will come out on the outside. Like, you will know. That's, that's why when people say, you can't know if somebody's saved. Oh, you can't know if somebody's saved. Oh, really? Um, take a four-year-old and ask him which tree is an orange tree or a peach tree or an apple tree. You just look at the fruit long enough. Well, what if there's never any fruit? Then it's dead. Or God is not able... To, is, is God so small He can't produce fruit? How little must that God be? He can't produce any fruit? Is that, is that God that small? My God's big enough that when He saves, He does a work in a life. And there will be some with 30-fold, and then some with 60-fold, and then some with what? 100-fold. And do you know in that day, a great yield, you know what a great yield was? A sevenfold yield. Jesus said, those who are truly saved, uh, they'll, they'll at least have thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Uh, there will be fruit. That's, that's what the BIBLD says. In that story, there were three people that were not saved and three people that were. Uh, we'll be getting to that here in a couple weeks. So uh, if you have questions about that, if you don't agree with my interpretation, uh, you will here in a couple of weeks. Or you'll write me some letters, that's good. Uh, but look at verse uh, 36 and 7. Our words are a window into our heart. Not only is our works, but our words. Look at he says in 36. But I say unto you that every uh, idle word, that, that could be also translated as careless word, just every casual word, men shall speak. They shall, I, I like the word idle, that's a great translation. Just, just, uh, just not, not you know, just throwing it out there. Whatever you say. That's why foolish jesting is, 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 is condemned. Like the Bible says, don't do that in, in Ephesians 5. Every idle word that men shall speak, they'll give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Salvation and condemnation are not produced by words and deeds, but they are manifested by your words and deeds. They will be revealed. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest we would boast. What's verse 10 say? For we are his what? Workmanship. Created unto what? Good works. And who created us to do that? Christ. So that's why you will do some good works. Because he creates you for that. That we should walk in them. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, by their fruits you'll know them. Those who seek to divorce true faith from true works deny the biblical teachings. 1 John 2, 4. Let's read this together. The Bible says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Is, could that be more clear? Does that mean you're going to be perfect all your life? No. You're going to have faults. You're going to have failures. You're going to have dry seasons. You're not going to be as fruitful some years. You ever have that tree that it's like, what happened to that side of the tree? You know, what happened over there? But, but there's always some. There's always something hanging off there. There's always some kind of fruit. Now, do the works of life evidence you're a Christian friend? Do the words of your life reveal you're a believer? That's why I say sometimes, if you ask the 10 closest people in your life, your coworkers and friends, would they say there's enough evidence in your life to condemn you as a Christian? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 3, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Every idle word, every careless word will be brought before God's judgment. The words and works of your life will attest to the fact that whether you're a true believer or not. 
Revelation 20 verse 11 says this, I saw a great white throne, him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There was no... Uh, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. That's, that's the spiritually separate from God. Spiritual death is separation from God. It's not cessation of life, it's separation. Notice, and the books were opened, and another book was opened. There's a book of life, book of works, and the word of God. Those are at least three books that'll be there. Which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their what? God is judging people at this great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of the condemned by their works. He goes on and says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and, every, and they were judged every man according to their works. You reject Christ, you don't want to be saved, you will be judged by every word and every work you ever did. Verse 14, and the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Christian, if you are saved, your works and words attest to that. If you're not saved, in the same manner. The Bible tells us that if you're truly saved, that your words and works are covered by the blood of Christ. Jesus says in John 5, 24, you will not come into condemnation. Your sins have been removed. Revelation 1.5 says, Unto him that loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood. How thankful we should be for Christ today. He's worth coming and worshiping, isn't he? Thirdly, to reject Christ makes you discontent and blinded to the evidence. It makes you blinded to the truth. To the religious leaders, they made up of the scribes and Pharisees who were considered experts of the law and highest in the religious scale, they asked Jesus to give them a sign to validate his claims. <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, how many thousands of miracles does he have to do? This is so, this is so absurd, isn't it? I mean, he just, he just healed a demon-possessed guy, healed his blindness and mute. Back in chapter 12, he also did miracles. I mean, it's like, what else do you want him to do? He's raised dead people. Uh, you, have, you have a miracle to attest uh, the fact of who you are, Jesus. You're making some pretty, pretty big claims here. You know, one thing that's true of a skeptic, those who choose to reject Christ, there's no amount of evidence that will convince them. Jesus had already likened the people of that day to children that were unable to be satisfied. He said, we piped unto you and you, dan you didn't dance. We mourned and you would not lament. Now, how does Jesus respond to them? Verse 39 but he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. He knew the evil and pride of their heart. He calls them adulterous generation. That, that, that word means like you're unfaithful. An adulterer is an unfaithful person. That's uh, to their spouse. That was a term used repeatedly of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah chapter 5, 7 through 8. And he says, No sign will be given you but the sign of Jonas. Now, instead of giving them a sign from heaven, he gives them a sign from Scripture. Matthew 12, 40 says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Remember the Old Testament prophet Jonah? He rejected God's command to go preach to Nineveh. Instead, he fled to Tarshish. God sent a massive storm. Jonah was thrown to the sea in order to save the men on board. God sent a great fish. It's, it's actually the Greek word ketos. It means a great sea creature. Swallows up Jonah. Could have been a whale, but it's just a, the, the, the word just means that. Uh, for three days, and then it spits him up on the shore. Here we see Jesus believed in a literal story of Jonah, didn't he? Oh, you believe a guy got swallowed by, did you, did you, have you heard about the guy that did get swallowed by a whale and spit out in the last couple of years? There's videos of it, it's crazy. The guy tells the story, he says, I was down there diving, all of a sudden something went around me, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am in the middle of a whale. It's what happened to the guy. It's like a sperm whale, I believe it was. And, uh, after a while, the whale got agitated and spit him out. You look it up. Don't look it up right now. I know what you guys are doing. Google is being asked. Just look it up later. Okay. Now, there's two types of prophecies in Scripture, verbal and typical. Verbal is like Jesus was going, is going to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2. Uh, he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He was born of a virgin. Those are verbal prophecies. The other type of prophecies the Old Testament gives are what are known as typical prophecies or prophecies in picture. That's like Abraham going to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah, right? Same mountain where Jesus Christ would be condemned. Fort Antonius. Putting the blood on doorpost and lintel, that's a picture 
these were predictive prophecies in picture rather than specific words. Jonah being in the belly of this great fish, this whale, pictures Christ going into the heart of the earth for three days. Sadly, in spite of the resurrection, they still did not believe, but rather paid in those days the Romans to be silent about it. Nothing would persuade them. Jesus says then in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise in uh, judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold a greater than Jonah's here. In other words, the pagan Ninevites were, Ninevites were so wicked they would defeat like their enemy, decapitate them and build pyramids out of their skulls. They would flay people alive. They were, they were so wicked. What's interesting is uh, ISIS actually grew out of the exact same location where Nineveh is. The, the, the wickedness of that area. And, um, and, and, and Jonah's like, I don't want to go there and preach. I wouldn't have wanted to go either. So he goes, and, but they, they repent. You know, I don't have time to go into it. They worshiped a fish god in Nineveh. He gets spit up by a fish on the shore. Probably looked a little bit funny. Uh, they're like, we better listen to this guy. When a guy gets spit up on shore by a fish and he says, if you don't repent in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. They're like, let's repent. Let's repent. That's merciful, isn't it? Is God merciful? And so the whole, the whole place repents. It's like the biggest revival ever. That's why there's hope for America. I mean, if Nineveh could repent. But here's one difference. America has the Bible. Nineveh didn't. Because we've had the truth and we've chosen to reject the light, that puts us at a very dangerous place. God was very gracious with the Ninevites. I believe he showed them a miracle in that with Jonah, where to us the miracle has been the scriptures, which is greater than a miracle, right? And I would rather have the word of God than a man spit up on a shore. And so, yet, so Nineveh, who didn't have the word of God, who, who didn't know these truths, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And, and, and the people of Israel in that day have the word of God. They have the son of God and they reject him. And, and, and what's interesting, he says, in the judgment, Nineveh will condemn Israel for their evil. You know what that also tells me? Those that condemned at the, at the judgment of Christ, at, at, the, at the great white throne judgment, they will not be seen with mercy. They'll be like, they deserve condemnation. Because in that day, we will see the level of wickedness that has been against God. It's kind of like this. If you went into a courtroom, I, I, don't, I won't even go into the details, but some of you guys have probably seen on the news where there were uh, seven adults that were involved in, in raping little, basically, toddlers. They need to take them and publicly execute those people. Publicly execute people who violate toddlers. That should happen. Anyway, you would not go into a courtroom if they said that person's condemned to death and be like, you know what, that's really harsh on them. If you did, your conscience is so whacked out somehow. When innocence at that level is violated by such animals, and, and, and that's what it would have to be, it's demonic, it's so wicked. And, and in the same way, one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to see how violated Christ has been by the sins of man. We will be like, that's justice. I'm telling you, you'll see it that way. Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it, for she uh, came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here, the queen of ancient Sheba, uh, which is in lower Arabia. This lady traveled 1,200 miles to hear Solomon's wisdom, and, 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 and she longed for that wisdom, and, and they have the Son of God, and they have him in their midst, and they won't even listen to him. She traveled 1,200 miles and you won't even listen to the truth here? She'll condemn you, he says to them. Friends, if the Ninevites repented and today you have God's word, the truth of Christ, and do not repent, what would Jesus say of you today? If the queen of the south traveled 1,200 miles for the truth of Solomon, you don't take the word of God and read it and study it and seek it, what would he say of you today? Fourth, to reject Christ is to open yourself up to greater evil. Verse 43, Jesus makes a strong transition. He says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Dry places there spoke of the waterless desert inhabited by man was regarded in that day of the habitation of evil spirits. And when he goes out of a man, he's said to walk in dry places and he doesn't find any rest. And he saith, I will return to my house from whence I came out from 
Whence he has come, and he findeth it swept and garnished. What happens is the demon, seeking a place of refuge, finds itself to be more comfortable inhabiting a body, typically a human body. They can also inhabit animals, as we've seen when Jesus cast them into pigs. And he goes back, and we don't know how this man was freed from the demon. Uh, Perhaps God just doesn't let demons stay in people so long to where they can have time to uh, clear their mind and be able to respond to the truth. Perhaps Jesus cast a demon out, but even if Jesus cast this demon out, not everybody who Jesus cast demons out of believed in him. Many of the people he healed, and just like the ten lepers in Luke 17, only one of them returned to give him praise and was a true believer. And so... This person, instead of turning to Christ, turns to morality. His house is swept and garnished. He becomes self-righteous. He becomes Pharisaic. He sees, now the demon's out of me, uh, that the pinnacle of what I should do is become like these Pharisees. I I clean everything up. Moral reformation. The demon returns and says, oh, this place is clean. I'm going to go get seven more demons, notice, more wicked than that demon. And they come back and it says, and the end of that man is worse than the first. And the application 45 at the end of the verse, even so shall it also be to this wicked generation. Jesus came and was delivering the nation of the demonic oppression it had. And because they did not fill themselves up with the truth of Christ and the Christ of truth, they were about to get possessed with even more demonic assault. That's what's happening in America right now. It's demonic. It's demonic. Uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 20 through 21 also speak to that. i got to jump to the fifth point. Lastly, to reject Christ keeps you from being part of God's family. Look at verse 46. While he talked to the people, while he yet talked, that's still conversation going on. Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. What, what happened was this. There was so much tension coming against Jesus at this point. It, became, it was getting dangerous for him. And his family knew it. At this time, his family were not all believers. I believe Mary was. Uh, but his brethren did not yet believe on him, the Bible talks about. They did after he rose from the dead. Um, but I think they were thinking they're going to preserve Jesus. They don't, you know, let's, let's, let's get him out of here. You know, this is, this is getting dangerous. Uh, Mark 3.21 talks about his friends came to him thinking he was beside himself. Like, Jesus, you're just, you're, you're crossing lines here, man. You're violating their traditions. You're, 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 you're getting everybody upset. Like, what are you doing? So, so, so what, what's interesting to me, too, it says his family was standing without. Why weren't they with him? And so it says, how did Jesus respond here? Three things that stand out. Verse 48 through 50. Verse 48 says, But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? This did not mean that Jesus denounces his family. He loved them more than they knew. But he expressed at the cross to make sure his mother was cared for. But there's three truths to point out here in these last three verses. First of all, blood relationship did not make you part of God's family. Even Jesus' own family had to become believers in Jesus in order to be saved. And if that's true of Jesus' own family, how much more is it true of the whole nation of Israel and of us? That's why when people say, oh, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Jesus' own family haven't always been Christians. Secondly, spiritual relationships transcend physical relationships. Christ's relationship was greater and more real to his disciples who believed in him than his earthly family who did not yet believe in him. You know, in a hundred years from now, like, I, my daughter Josie is my daughter, but my spiritual relationship transcends that. Because in a hundred years from now, she'll still be my sister in Christ, but she won't be my daughter. So, in the same way, understanding that. And then thirdly, Jesus is offering the opportunity for everyone to be part of his family. He is swinging the door open. Look at verse 50, that's why he says this. He says, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my mother and sister and brother. What he's saying is, whosoever, anybody can come and be part of the family. Anybody can become and be part of the family. Look at John 1, 11 and 12 here as we close with this verse today. 
It says this, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. If you'd read the rest with me. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you want to be in God's family, you must come through Jesus Christ. And he says, whosoever will may come. Today, friend, don't reject Christ. The cost is eternal. The cost is greater than you can ever imagine. You will confine yourself to your sin. You will open your life up to much greater iniquity. Christ offers you the divine hand of grace. He defines who he is, not us. Come to him today. Let's all pray.